We are reading from Acts 17, verses 5 to 8. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father above, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us as we look at your scriptures this morning, as we contemplate the lordship of Jesus. That you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to respond that you would help us to think your thoughts after you. Guide us in your truth, we pray. In the name of your son, amen. Well, Jesus is Lord. It's a phrase that we often hear, and it is a phrase that we often use. We sang about it this morning. But is it a phrase that we understand? I mean, truly understand. Sure, it might sound simple enough, but just like John 3, 16, perhaps the most memorised verse in Scripture, things can at times seem so familiar to us that they become commonplace. Things can seem so familiar to us that we begin to think that we've discovered all there is to know about those things. Now, initially, some of us might think, surely it requires no thought longer than it takes to say it. Jesus is Lord. It speaks for itself. What more is there to grasp? Well, the title Lord is repeatedly attributed to Jesus throughout the Bible. In fact, it appears 700 times in the New Testament and 100 times in the book of Acts alone. We still use it frequently today. We worship on the Lord's day. We say the Lord's prayer. We eat, at, we eat the Lord's supper at the Lord's table and we pray in the Lord's name. We speak of those who are in the Lord. But do we know what it means that Jesus is Lord. Have we ever really felt the weight of that phrase? Now, in the early days of the church, the phrase was unlikely to be uttered without a proper understanding of what it meant. You see, at that time, voicing such a statement had 
consequences, major consequences. It could result in your immediate execution. Why? Because under the Roman Empire, there was only one Lord, and his name was Caesar. Under the Roman Empire, this basic confession of the Christian faith was, con- was considered an admission of treason, and treason was a capital offence. Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. It was a phrase that Roman citizens were required not only to acknowledge but to affirm. And that affirmation did not just acknowledge Caesar as an earthly authority, as we might a prime minister or a president, but it affirmed a supreme authority, a divine authority. This was largely what the empire wanted imprinted into the minds of the people, so much so that you couldn't buy or sell without that confession imprinted on much of the currency that was exchanged. There was one state. There was one empire. There was one lord. Now, of course, it was through this that the Roman Empire sought to maintain social unity, social harmony. It didn't matter what the citizens' social differences were. In the end, they were all children of the empire. They were all subject to the same Lord. What that meant was that anyone who refused to say Caesar is Lord was viewed as a threat, a national threat that risked the stability of the empire under their supreme unifying leader, And they also risked angering the gods. Resistance would not be tolerated. But who was it that refused? Who refused to affirm Caesar as Lord? Who posed this supposed threat to the empire? Well, the only reason you wouldn't affirm Caesar as Lord is because You don't really believe he is Lord, and you wouldn't really believe he is Lord if you believed somebody else owned that title. To the early church, the confession that Jesus is Lord was a direct indictment against the empire and their emperor worship. Yes, God established governments. He set boundaries in which they operate but Caesar was claiming more authority than he had any right to claim. Not only over the people by demanding their worship, but over Christ by claiming his throne. And so when the early church began not only to refuse to bow to Caesar as supreme, but to confess Jesus as Lord, it was clear in the minds of the Roman authorities exactly what they were saying. To say Jesus is Lord was to say Caesar was not. We saw this in the text we just read in Acts 17, verse 7. Speaking of the first Christians, they said, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. To make that assertion was to forfeit your life. Let me paint the picture for you a little bit clearer. In the first century in Smyrna, there was a bishop by the name of Polycarp, and he was said to be a disciple of the apostle 
John. And when persecutions against Christians increased, Polycarp became a wanted man. When the authorities eventually captured him, we're told that the captain of a local troop tried to convince Polycarp to save himself. How? He pressed him, the account says. Just say Caesar is Lord. Offer incense. What harm is there in that? But Polycarp refused. And he was taken as a prisoner to the arena. Let me read from the account. Quote, as Polycarp entered the stadium, there came a voice from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and courageous. And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. And then as he was brought forward, there was a great uproar when they heard that Polycarp had been arrested. Therefore, when he was brought before him, the proconsul asked him if it were Polycarp, and he confessed that he was. And the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists. Now, early Christians were, the, were first branded atheists for denying uh, the divinity of Caesar and the Roman pantheon with it. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathens who were in the stadiums. He motioned towards them with his hand. Then he groaned as he looked up to heaven and he said, away with the atheists. But when the magistrate persisted and said, swear the oath to Caesar and I will release you, revile Christ, Polycarp replied, for 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? After pressing Polycarp again and again to affirm Caesar as Lord, the proconsul threatened to burn him in fire or to unleash wild beasts. But the bishop was unflinching in his faith. So the Roman authorities prepared a pyre and they fastened Polycarp to it with ropes. They lit it and they burned it. And the account says his body was not burning like flesh, but like bread baking or like gold and silver being refined in the furnace. Quote, when the lawless men eventually realized that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they ordered an executioner to go up and stab him with a dagger. When they did this, there came out a dove and a large quantity of blood so that it extinguished the fire. And the whole crowd was amazed that there should be so great a difference between unbelievers and the elect of God, end quote. Just say, Caesar is Lord, Polycarp. Offer the incense. What harm is there in that? What a contrast to what has today sadly become a commonplace phrase. The title itself in our culture has even been reduced to cursing that's now tolerated in children's entertainment. But is it commonplace for us? What does it mean when we say Jesus is Lord? If somebody asked you that today, how might you answer? Well, answers may vary. There are many misunderstandings plaguing the modern church today, perhaps not to such a degree here, but in the broader church, two misunderstandings seem to stand 
above the rest in terms of their popularity. First, we often hear Christians, even within the pulpits, talking about our need to make Jesus our personal Lord and Saviour. It's as though he's not Lord until we appoint him as such. Until then, they say, he stands at the door of our heart knocking and he won't enthrone himself over our lives until we grant him the permission to do so. The other popular view acknowledges that Jesus is in fact Lord, regardless of our personal opinions, but that his authority is distinctly restricted to the church, that he's he's a spiritual authority, that he has no jurisdiction outside of the church and certainly not in the secular world or their institutions. He's not Lord over education. He's not Lord over law enforcement. He's not Lord over economics. He's not Lord over politics. He's not Lord over the local soccer club. But both of these approaches are fundamentally flawed. Why? Because in both instances, they're artificially limiting the sphere and the realm of Jesus's lordship. In both instances, the dominion of Jesus is restricted, either by the will of the individual in the first instance or by an unbiblical restriction, an unbiblical restrictive jurisdiction in the second. Jesus is Lord, but does his lordship and authority have limits? Is he only Lord of some things or is he Lord of all things? One of the most basic tenets of the Christian faith is that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he was taken up into heaven where he is presently seated at the right hand of the Father. Mark tells us in his gospel after he had raised Jesus was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Mark 16, verse 19. In Hebrews, we're told when Christ had offered for all time a sacrifice for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, verse 12. Now, he's been seated there in that position for over 2,000 years, but that's not 2,000 years of inactivity. Jesus is not sitting there idly watching the world tick No, the Bible tells us repeatedly that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father where he began to reign as Lord. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Did you catch that? Peter did not tell the house of Israel to make Jesus their personal Lord. He said God has made him Lord. He is Lord. And it's not up to us to make him that. God has already done it. It's up to us to submit because he is our Lord. The question is only whether we are his subjects or whether we are traitors. Of course, there are a number of reasons why these limiting views of Jesus' authority have been so popular 
in the modern church. One of the problems is that the term Lord no longer has earthly equivalents in our culture at least. What the title means, particularly in the New Testament, is a supreme authority over someone or something else. It might also be translated as master. It's not surprising then that we see Paul often referring to himself and to other Christians as doulos, a slave, a servant of our Lord and master, Jesus. So when God made Jesus Lord, he was given dominion. He was given authority over someone or something. That is what the title implies. But what? What is the extent of our Lord's authority? As we noted, some might suggest it's limited to spiritual matters. Some might say it's restricted to church governance or to theological disputes, or that it's only applicable to our personal, private, religious experiences. But is this what we see in the Bible? At the close of Matthew's gospel, just before Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he gives the apostles what we call the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus tells the 11 to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, that's what we often think of when we're talking about the Great Commission. But that's not all that Jesus said. There's an important word there that was missed. He doesn't just say, go and make disciples. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, they had to go in light of what was previously stated. They had to go because of what he said in the prior verse. So what did he say? Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What is the scope of Jesus' lordship? What is the extent of his authority and dominion? All authority in heaven and not just heaven, This is the point we often overlook. Jesus didn't just say, all authority in heaven has been given to me. He said, all authority on earth has been given to him. All authority on earth. In Paul's words, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Philippians 2 verse 8. And he did this by placing all things in subjection to him, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. In short, Jesus is the head, not only of the church, but of all rule and all authority, Colossians 2, verse 1. If there is a throne in heaven, Jesus' throne is superior. If there is a throne on earth, Jesus' throne is higher. If there is a name on earth, Jesus' name is greater. If there is anything in existence, it is subject to our Lord. 
And that's true from the smallest atom to the largest galaxy and everything in between. That reality does not depend on whether we as individuals or we as a nation acknowledge it to be so. Jesus is Lord over every authority. That means Jesus is the king of Australia. Jesus is the king of the United States. He's the king of China, and he's the king of every other nation on earth because all authority has been given to him. We read it earlier. What does the father say to Jesus in Psalm 2? The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Daniel similarly saw a vision of this reality when he wrote, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. But to what end? So that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. Daniel 7 verse 14. So important is this reality that Jesus references this very passage during his trial warning the high priest that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest knew exactly what this meant. And when he heard it, we're told he tore his clothes and he pronounced death to Jesus. He knew what this meant. There is no king higher. There is no president superior. There is no prime minister with more power. There is no politician, police officer, military with more authority. If there is a Lord on earth, Jesus is that Lord's Lord. If there is a king on earth, Jesus is that king's king. How important is this fact? Of all the things that our Lord could have written on his clothing, what phrase did he choose? The Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation, on his robe and on his thigh, he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19, verse 16. Look back again at Psalm 2. What does God say to the kings of the earth? What does he say to the rulers of the nations? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What is the extent of our Lord's authority? In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That truth is the very basis of our marching orders as Christians. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, because of this fact, go, make disciples of all the nations, all the nations over which he now reigns. Yes, we will face 
opposition. But though the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, though the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Jesus, Psalm 2 tells us, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. We're in a world of chaos right now, the inevitable result of rejecting Christ as king. But the encouragement for us as Christians who acknowledge the authority of our king, we can take heart. We can take heart because of what Isaiah tells us in chapter 9 of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is Lord. He is king over all. His authority, not only he has authority not only over the nations of the earth, but over the individuals in those nations, over me. And over you, over how we live our lives, big and small decisions alike, not only what we do with our hands, not only what we say with our mouths, what we think in our hearts and our minds. How then shall we live in light of this fact? What is the appropriate response to the proclamation that Jesus Christ is now Lord and King over everyone and everything? Well, first, repentance. That was the message of the early church. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. Turn from your treason. Turn from your rebellion. Turn from your sins. Turn to the King. And there, look Look to what he's done to pardon his subjects. Look to the cross, to his suffering and to his death. Look to his resurrection. Look to his ascension, to the eternal throne. There you'll find forgiveness. There you'll find the promise of his Holy Spirit. This is the good news. Jesus is Lord. The second response is to pray. Pray for those who have not repented, not just for our friends and our family, which we often get in the habit of restricting our prayers to, but Paul says, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. He defines what he means for kings and for all who are in high positions. For God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What truth is that? The truth that we only just celebrated last month. The truth, to quote a famous Christmas carol, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus is Lord over everything. Let's praise him as his subjects. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your lordship. We thank you for your power and authority. These are things that should bring us joy. These are are things that should bring us confidence. These are things we should celebrate. No matter how bad the world is, no matter what we suffer and uh, how 
uh, out of control um, things are at the moment with coronavirus, with uh, earthquakes, with volcanoes and with wars, there is a good and loving king seated on the throne who works everything for the good of his people to the glory of his name. Let us not forget that. Let us not despair. Let us rejoice that you are king. In Jesus' name, amen.